Church family, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, joining in with the cries of brothers and sisters that have spanned the generations for thousands of years, who spoke out the Apostles' Creed in faith and confidence and hope to stand with them on the orthodoxy of Scripture and to say, we believe. We believe in God the Father, the author and perfecter of our faith, the unveiler of providence, the deliverer of the unforgivable. We come to you as say that we believe in Christ the Son, our deliverer, our justifier, our mediator, the one who intercedes for us, giving us access to the Father. We come now saying we believe. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the, the sign and the seal of our faith, the comforter and helper given to us in the days of our weakness, the first fruits of the resurrection that is to come bodily for us upon the return of Christ. We believe and we ask you, the Godhead, the almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit, to do your unique work on this day among your people through your word. Father, let us hear about the goodness of your sovereignty and rest in it. Let us obey your word and obey your will. Let us do it through the grace given to us in Christ Jesus by the power given to us through the holiness of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, move among your people on this day. Move among us and stir us toward greater faithfulness in you. We come to you now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Deliverer. Amen. You may be seated. Man, I'm already tired. Amen. One of the things that I have found is that I have found that people are volcanoes, right? You do enough talking with people and you, you learn this. You, you hang out in ministry long enough and you learn this. That it may re remain dormant for a while, but that whatever it is that's beneath the surface of a man, whatever it is that is beneath the surface of a woman, eventually will erupt. Eventually will come spilling out of them like lava out of a volcano. Perhaps you have a mom, a wife... And she seems to be the perfect mom. She seems to be the perfect wife. And so she's the PTA president. And she's packing up, you know, gluten-free lunches. And she's getting the house done. And she's got a job of her own that she goes. And she takes care of that. And she tries to be there for her husband and be there for her children. But beneath the surface for years and years and years, she has totally and utterly resented it until eventually she erupts. She erupts. She goes off the deep end and she goes and does things that seem wild and crazy and unrecognizable by people. But the truth is, is that has been beneath the surface for a long time. And finally, the heart has just erupted and everybody left in its wake is there to be devastated. Maybe it's the dad and the husband that's very similar 
his family like when he comes home, the, his co-workers like the jokes that he tells, his neighbors would tell you that he would give them the shirt off of his back. He does the things that he's supposed to do. He provides for his family. He makes them feel safe until one day he just erupts and that veil of perfection, that mask that he has been masquerading behind comes crumbling down and he erupts and the lava scorches everyone that is close to him, leaving them filled as though they are dismayed onlookers to a stranger. The truth is that had been in him the whole time. And he had suppressed it and suppressed it and covered it and covered it until he could do so no longer. And finally, he has erupted to show the truth and the venom of his hearts. Of course, the opposite can be true too. That you can have someone, no matter how humble they are and no matter how gracious they are, that if they have a heart that is truly filled with virtue and kindness and character and the fruit of the Spirit manifesting itself, that no matter how humble they are, eventually that's going to spill out of their life and others will take notice. I think of Miss Ora Collier who is 93 years old and would want, wants more than anything in the world to be here with her church family. And, even if, and then if she was here with her church family, she said, well, I really want nothing more than to be in heaven with my heavenly father. But you know, I don't know of a lady that's more humble and more gracious, and I don't know a lady with greater renown either. That there are people that come from hundreds, sometimes thousands of miles, all the way from California to Chicago to New York and Virginia that have come to the middle of nowhere on County Road something in Cleburne County to pay their respects to this woman who has left an indelible mark on their lives because of the faithfulness and the kindness and the generosity with which she has lived. That as much as Miss Ora would not want me to ever say that, that the truth of the matter is, is it has erupted from her life, flowing out of her heart, and it is undeniable and unmistakable. Now the truth of the matter is, is that whatever is inside of a person will come out of a person. That you cannot, for the long haul, conceal character. That character and virtue and integrity and the person that you are or the person that you're not, all of that is going to flow out eventually like a volcano spewing lava. And so last week as we began Matthew chapter 15, we have Jesus talking about the kind of worship that the Father, the kind of worshiper that the Father is glorified by. He says that the Father is looking for those who are not simply ritually pure, but those who are morally pure. That those Pharisees were crying out to God and singing out to God with all of the right words. But though their lips brought glory to God, their hearts were indeed far from God. And we're going to continue that line of thinking this morning as we see the kind of, the kind of disciple that Jesus accepts and the type that he rejects. So would you turn with me yet again to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. We're going to read this morning verses 15 and 20. We're going to pick up with the thought that we ended with last week. Matthew chapter 15 beginning in verse 15. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together. 
God's inerrant word says, But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. So in verse 11, Jesus had said this. He had said, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And so, he, so, so it's this difference again between ritual purity and moral purity. And we know that this had incensed the Pharisees. And now what we're finding out is that this had also made Jesus' disciples very, very uncomfortable. You have to understand what Jesus was saying here. Jesus was saying, it, it doesn't matter that you haven't washed your hands. It doesn't matter the food that you have eaten. That, that is totally irrelevant. None of that is what defiles you. What defiles you is your heart. Is your heart pure or is your heart impure? Now for us, that doesn't mean very much. We, we live in a culture as, as Gentile people in which the things that we eat we give very little thought to. Maybe some of us think about nutrition. Maybe some of us think about health. But for the most part, we give very little thought to the idea that food could defile us. But in Jesus' day, talking to a group of Jews, a Jewish crowd, and now to Jewish disciples, the things that he, were say, he was saying were radical. The things that he, were, he was saying were, were outlandish to them. And essentially the things that Jesus is saying, in their eyes, could be equated to blasphemy. See, God had given them the ceremonial law. God had given them the law of the things that they could eat and not eat. The things that were pure and unpure, clean and unclean. God had given this to them, to his people. That they might be set apart from all the peoples of the earth. That they might be marked as those that follow after a unique God. Those who in fact care about holiness. And those who in fact care about righteousness. And so God had given them the ceremonial law which encompassed these food laws that they might be set aside, marked as the children of God, as the nation that had entered into covenant with God Almighty. And now here Jesus was saying, really? Those laws, they have nothing to do with whether or not you're defiled before God or not. Th th those, those laws are not what makes you clean or unclean, pure or impure. Defiled or undefiled before God. What God is looking for is not simply the food that you eat, but the heart from which it comes. And for someone to say that is to put themselves speaking with the authority of God himself. To, to speak as though he himself is God. To say that I can tell you what you can eat and can't eat myself. And I'm telling you it's okay that you eat that. This is blasphemy if he is not God. You understand that? And so Peter comes 
And he comes on behalf of all the disciples. Mark and Mark has an account of this very same story in Mark chapter 7. And Mark says that all of the disciples come to Jesus. And they do. All the disciples come to Jesus. And you have Peter speaking on their behalf. And he's saying, Jesus, can you please tell us what in the world you are talking about? What are you talking about? And what might catch us off guard here is that Jesus rebukes his disciples. He rebukes them. He says, you still don't understand? You still don't get it? Now, I think a lot of times we realize how hard these things were for the Pharisees to understand. We realize how difficult it is for the Pharisees, those who, who observe and uphold the law and love the law, to observe these things that Jesus is saying about the food laws and the defilement and all of that and, and undermining in their minds the ceremonial law. We understand how difficult it is for the Pharisees, but what we need to understand is that the disciples were Jewish men too. And the disciples were under the influence of the, Pharisee, the Pharisees' teaching. This is how they thought about God too. This was the baggage they were bringing to the table too. And so when Jesus comes to them, and he says, it's not about the things that you eat. It's not about whether you've washed your hands or not washed your hands. It's not about all of these things on the exter exterior that you've tried to do to make yourself right with God or pure before God. All of that is irrelevant. It's about the heart. For the disciples, this was hard. And so Jesus is rebuking him because, as you can imagine, verse 11, it calls it a parable, but it's not a very difficult one to understand, is it? It's, it's, it's actually very straightforward. And so on behalf of the disciples here, what we see is almost a willful ignorance. They are choosing not to understand because this is a hard teaching, and frankly, it makes them uncomfortable, and they don't really like it. They don't like what Jesus is saying here. And so Jesus rebukes them. Do you not think that I'm good? Do you not think that you can trust me? After all of this time, do you still not understand what I'm teaching? Do you still not understand what I'm all about? Do you still not understand what I've come here to do? Do you still not understand how it is that I relate to the law? Are you still not connecting here? Are you still not getting it here? You know, the teachings of Jesus are hard. The teachings of Jesus are difficult teachings. And his disciples will always have to wrestle with whether or not they are going to obey the difficult teachings of Jesus. Let's just think about some of the things that Jesus teaches us to do. We think about in Luke chapter 14 verse 33 when it says, If you do not renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. Think about just in Matthew chapter 5, just the difficult teachings of Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says that if you lust in your mind, you have committed adultery in your heart. He says that if you are harboring anger and bitterness, that you have committed murder in your heart. He says that if your right eye causes you to sin, that you should rip it from your skull. If your right arm causes you to sin, you should cut it off so that it will cause you to sin no longer. He tells you that not only should you pray for your enemy, but you should love your enemy. He says that if a, a soldier comes to you and asks you to carry their armor for a mile, you should say, go ahead and count on me to take it two miles. He says that if somebody takes their right hand and punches you in the face, that you should turn the other cheek and tell them to punch there also. 
The teachings of Jesus are not for the light of heart. The teachings of Jesus are radical, countercultural, impossible by human flesh and power and understanding. You cannot live them out. You will not live them out. They seem absurd to the rational mind, absurd to the sane person if you are not in fact filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, what all of us have to wrestle with is the same thing that Jesus' disciples had to wrestle with way back then. Is Jesus worth obeying? Is Jesus worth obeying? That's the question. Is he worth obeying when he tells us to love our enemy? Is he worth obeying when he tells us that forgiveness cannot be found in the heart of his children? Or, or forgiveness must be found in the heart of his children? Is he worth obeying when he tells us that we don't live for this world and that we should turn the other cheek? Is he worth obeying when he says that we should be violent toward the sin and the wickedness in our lives? Is Jesus worth it? Because I think what we find in our own hearts is what the disciples were finding in theirs. That sometimes when we come to the difficult teachings of scripture, and we come to the hard teachings of Jesus, that there is a willful ignorance. That we are, are choosing to not understand it the way that Jesus intends for us to understand it. That we are choosing not to believe it the way that Jesus says it because it's too hard for us. And frankly, we just don't like it. And so I ask you, when you come to passages like that, when you come to difficult things for you to understand and for you to apply, do you choose to believe that the Bible means it some other way than he actually says it? Do you, do you try to change the Bible to make it more comfortable for you? Or do you then allow the Bible to change you no matter how uncomfortable and difficult that is? To follow after Christ is to deny yourself and take up your cross. And that means the cross that comes with all of the difficult teachings and all of the hard, hard lessons and all of the difficult calls to obedience time and again, time and again. This is why if you follow after Jesus to be his disciple, he says you better count the cost. You better count the cost for the Son of Man has no place to lay down his head. Is that who you're following, brothers and sisters? Are those the teachings that you have submitted your life to? Have you deemed Jesus worthy of obedience in the hard realities of Scripture? When we come to verse 17, frankly, it's kind of a gross verse. You ever just read something in Scripture and think, man, that's kind of gross? Listen to what Jesus says. He says, do you not see whatever goes into the mouth and passes into the stomach and is expelled? Obviously, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about the biological processes. And you're thinking, like, I'm thinking, Jesus, that's a bit graphic, okay? Could we, could we come up with something, something different here? Could we come up with, with something new here? But what Jesus is doing is he is confronting his disciples on something that they would struggle with for generations to follow. See, Remember that Matthew here is writing to a church, right? He's writing to the early church. He's, he's giving it to this early church of Jewish Christians that they might know what it means to follow after Jesus. And I think the reason that Matt, both Matthew and Mark saw fit to bring these under the superintending of the Spirit into their books is because Jesus here is addressing something that, is very, that the early church struggled with mightily. See, the early church really struggled with the idea of if I don't look Jewish and sound Jewish and behave Jewish and eat Jewish and think Jewish and do Jewish, I really can't be a part of the church. 
I really can't be about a, a part of the early church. We see this in, in Acts chapter 10 when Peter is with Cornelius, right? And, and he's like really uncomfortable with the idea of, of having to eat all of these impure things and unclean things. And Peter says, I, Lord, never has anything unclean ever touched these lips. But what Jesus is saying and what he is saying to them and to us today is that God is not interested in skin-deep godliness. God is not interested in what our presentation looks like. He does not care about the foods that we eat and the ways that we dress and the way that our hair looks and all of that other nonsense that we spend so much energy and time focusing on that what Jesus is interested in and what the Lord is looking for in us is a heart that is pure and undefiled before Him. You see... For us, when someone visits our church, even though we may not like this about ourselves, this is just true. When they look like us, and they dress like us, and they talk like us, and their family presents itself the same way that our family presents itself, we think, that is a good prospect for our church. That is a person that should join in our church. That is a person that obviously the gospel has taken hold in their lives. But the truth of the matter is, is what Jesus is teaching is all of this is just food to be expelled. All of these are external trappings that mean nothing. That reveal nothing of the character of the heart. That reveal nothing of the character of the faith. That God is not looking for those things on the external which defile you, but those things on the internal that defile you. That it does not matter if there are or tattoos or different kinds of clothing that we're not used to or that they speak in a way that's unlike us. None of those things defile you before Almighty God. It's about what kind of heart is in your chest. What is the purity of your faith before Him? All of those other things are skin deep. All of those things are irrelevant before Almighty God. God, I wonder sometimes if we believe that when we stand before God, as long as our hair is cut right and our, our clothes are ironed right and our faces are cleaned up right, in other words, as long as we have on our cultural Christianity uniform, that when we stand before the Lord, we're going to be right with Him. Brothers and sisters, I think at the very essence of what Jesus is teaching here in Matthew chapter 15 is that you better have more than your Christian uniform when you stand before God on judgment day. That you better have more than neat clothes and a clean exterior and sparkling church attendance when you stand before the great judge of the universe. You better be clothed in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. You better have in your chest a heart that is undefiled before the Lord. Because all of the uniforms, all of the haircuts, all of the clean uh, sparkling smiles are irrelevant before an all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe. What he is looking for is a heart that is pure before him, offered to serve him and to love him in all things, in all ways. But because what we see, what we see, we judge men by. We have deceived 
ourselves. Brothers and sisters, godliness is not skin deep. Godliness is the formation of your character into the character of Christ himself. So right here in this passage in Mark, in Mark chapter 7, I told you there's a parallel, okay? And this is why you should read all of the parallels. In Mark chapter 7, he really gives us an indicator to let us know that something massive is going on here. That something big is going on here. I've already hinted all around it, but, but in Mark chapter 7, he gives us these brackets, right? These little editorial comments. Now, if you're in my How to Interpret the Bible class on Wednesday nights, one of the things that I'm going to teach you is that you need to know the audience to which the book was written to. You need to know if you want to understand the Bible in this context and you want to understand what those particular verses and that particular passage really means, you need to know who it was that it was originally intended to be read by. And here's why. Matthew is written by a Jew to Jews, to Jewish Christians, those that were saved by faith. And so when you come into details of Jewish culture, Matthew doesn't have to give you a lot of detail. Matthew doesn't have to give you a lot of, of editorial comments to explain why this is significant or what this means. Why? These are Jews that he's talking to. They see these things naturally. They can read between the lines. But for Mark's audience, Mark was writing to a Roman Gentile audience. And writing to a Roman Gentile audience, Mark gave them greater detail so they could understand exactly the magnitude of what was going on in his gospel. And so in brackets, in, in Mark's gospel, he gives us this sentence that says, Thus he declared all foods clean. He declared all foods clean. Now, if for all of us, you're sitting there and you're thinking, so what? Who cares? In Mark's day, he's writing, and this is radical. This is radical. This is outlandish that God has completely upended his law to say that the ceremonial law is now obsolete. You see, this is the day that barbecue steps into the church fellowship. All right? Can somebody get excited? This is, the, this is the day that set the table, pun intended, for wild game suppers thousands of years later. Alright? This is the day that sets all of that up when Jesus says, Thus, all of this is clean. All foods are fine. It does not matter. So you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5.17. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. I came as a fulfillment of it. You see, the ceremonial laws, the food laws were always temporary. They were always temporary, marking the people of God and setting aside the people of God because one day Jesus was coming. One day Jesus was coming and Jesus was going to come totally pure, totally undefiled, totally righteous, totally holy. And Jesus, when he came, was not just going to change the exterior, was not just going to mark you by the foods that you ate. Jesus was coming and he was going to put the Holy Spirit in your life that your heart might be made new, that you would be marked by the Spirit of God in you and the holiness that poured out of you as a result. Paul says that it's the difference between we don't have to be circumcised by the flesh anymore, now we have have been circumcised for the heart, that the food laws were always temporary because the food laws were always pointing 
forward. Now in Christ Jesus, those things having been fulfilled, we are marked not by what we eat. We are marked by the very indwelling of the presence of God living in us. So Jesus says, as a result, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. Now some of you are saying this. See, I told you it really didn't matter how I lived. I told you it really didn't matter how I lived. It really didn't matter what I do because Jesus only cares about my heart, right? We live in the day of the heart. Just follow the heart, sweetheart. It's okay. Your heart's good. It's okay, right? We live in the day of the heart. And so some of you are, are leaning back in to this feel-goodism that says, see, Cody, see, preacher, you're telling me all these things that I have to do. But Jesus says it's just about my heart. But what I want you to understand is that Jesus is not lowering your culpability. He is raising it. He is raising it. You have to understand how Jesus intends you to understand the heart. You have to understand what a manipulation and misinterpretation it is to believe that Jesus, only caring about the heart, totally disregards the life. Because what Jesus is saying is that your life flows out of your heart. That your life, in fact, reveals your heart. The things that you say and the things that you do, the obedience or disobedience, the shame or the godliness, whatever flows out of your life flows out of your heart and makes you culpable before God Almighty. See, the, the heart has been at the very center of Jesus' teachings from the beginning. From the beginning, Jesus has always taught us the difference between external religion and a religion that flows out of the heart. Godliness that flows out of the heart. He has told us, as I spoke earlier, that those who, who uh, harbor bitterness commit murder in the heart and thus are accountable for murder, right? He has told us that those who lust in the mind can commit adultery in the heart and thus are held accountable for adultery and an affair of the heart. He has told us in Matthew chapter 9 that he desires mercy and not sacrifice. He has told us in Matthew 12 and then again here in Matthew chapter 15 that good fruit flows out of a good heart and bad fruit flows out of a bad heart. That all of those things that are in your life and those volcanic moments in which you erupt and the surface comes pouring out of you are not in fact a mistake but are revelations of the heart. And they will defile you before Almighty God. So yes, it matters what you do because what you do is a revelation of your heart and the nature and character and virtue to be found there. You are not let off the hook by Jesus. In fact, Jesus is telling you that the purity of your heart determines your position before God. That pure hearts will lead to pure lives. And impure hearts will lead to impure lives. You want to know the character and the nature of your heart? Look at your life. What do you do? What do you say? Where do you go? How do you think? How do you live? What do you deem important and what do you deem irrelevant? All of these things are flowing out of the heart. So when we come into verse 19, he's giving us examples of what it is that defiles a person. 
He's giving us examples of things that flow out of the heart that defile us before God himself. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So here's what Jesus is saying. This is important. That if you have an anger problem, first you have a heart problem. Do you have a problem in which you're thinking evil thoughts to the destruction of others? It's because there's a corruption in your heart. Do you find yourself longing to be with a man or a woman that is not your wife? It's because there is a corruption in your heart. Are you in the midst of an affair? It's because there's a corruption in your heart. Are you in the throes of sexual immorality with a homosexual relationship or a a sexting relationship or an addiction to pornography? It's because there is broken disruption in your heart. There is wickedness in your life because there is wickedness in your heart. All of it starts there. All of it originates there. And all of it comes pouring, spilling out into the actions of your life. See, there's a simple question that I think that you can answer to know whether or not your heart is acceptable in the sight of God. And it's this. Is Jesus enough for you? Is Jesus enough for you? Before you just say yes, of course, and move on with some other Christian Sunday school answer, I want to give you pause because this is the difference between life and death. This is the difference between being right with God and being being apart from God, condemned by God. This is the difference between being an ally and being an enemy. Is Jesus enough for you? Because the sins of your life are the results of idols in your heart. The sins that come pouring out of your life are the results of things that you believe in your life are necessary if you want to be happy. Necessary if you want to have joy. You know why people have affairs? Because they think it will make them happy. You want to know why people look at pornography? Because they think it will make them happy. You want to know why people spin themselves into oblivion? Because they think it will make them happy. Do you know why people blow up on their families? Because they think it will make them feel vindicated. If it was something just about the, the pornography, if it was just about the affair, if it was just about the sex thing, if it was just about, if it was just about the, the explosions of anger, you could, fix, you could get rid of that and everything would be fine. But what every single one of us knows this morning is that that isn't that simple. It doesn't work like that. That those are symptoms of a more profound disease, the disease of sinfulness in your heart, wickedness, defilement before God Almighty. And over and over and over, as you explode in anger, as you go to the computer screen, as you go to your mistress or your lover, you're over and over and over saying, Jesus, you aren't enough for me, I need him, and I need that, and I've got to have this, and I've got to be vindicated. All of that is necessary for my happiness. I am not satisfied enough with you. I need more than you. So I ask you again, church, is Jesus 
enough for you? Is Jesus enough even if you never get married or hear a man tell you that you're beautiful? Is Jesus enough if you never have a, a savings account and never know for certain that next month's bills are paid? Is Jesus enough if you never go on a vacation or never have a child or never have others believe that you're important? Is Jesus enough if your husband or your wife walks out on you? Is Jesus enough if you get cancer or go blind or have to care for a bedridden spouse for 35 years? Is Jesus enough for you? That is the heart that is undefiled before God. That is the heart that is undefiled before God. The heart that goes to him and says, you're all I need. If I don't have a stitch of clothing, if I don't have a nickel, if I don't have a kid, if I don't have a lover, if I don't have affirmation, if I don't have, if I don't have companionship, you are companion enough for me. You are wealth enough for me. You are joy enough for me. You are satisfying enough for me. I need nothing else. It's not about what you wear. It's not about how clean you look in the church. It's about whether or not Jesus is enough for you. And brothers and sisters, what I want you to say here the same thing that Paul tells us, the same thing that Jesus showed us, the thing, same thing that Christians throughout the generations have shown us is that Jesus is worth it all. Worth it all. This morning I talked about the volcano that is so much of our lives. And maybe this morning you sat there and you listened and you thought, that's me. That beneath the surface, beneath the impressive exterior, is a heart that's about to erupt and destroy everybody close to me. What can I do? This morning you come to Jesus and you find that he is enough. And he is the one that is able to give you a new heart. A heart that doesn't erupt with lava and venom, but a heart that overflows into love, kindness, joy, and security. That if you will count the cost and you will, do, you will believe obedience to him worth it. That you can come to him and you will be made new in Christ Jesus. Today, would you come? Would you come? Would you come and find that Jesus is in fact enough? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, forgive us for all of the times that we come to you with impure hearts. We come to you and we say, I have to have this and that and this and that. I need her and him and this possession and that possession. I need this relationship. Lord, let us on this day put all of those things to death. Let us say that you, O oh Lord, are enough. You, O oh Lord, are the fountain of living water that leaves us satisfied forever. That if our house is small and our family is non-existent and our budget is zero, that you will still be sufficiently worthy of all of our praise, adoration, and love. That you will still be 
the friend that stays closer than a brother. Lord, I pray that your children today could rest and that you are enough. I pray today, Lord, that those who have in beneath the sparkling exterior a heart that is defiled before you, that today, oh Lord, you would save them and deliver them and bring them into the light, that, Lord, they might recognize you as being the treasure worth selling the whole farm for. Lord, move in our hearts today. Let us leave transformed. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, maybe you've never found in your heart to be transformed. Maybe there was a heart defiled by God beneath the exterior preparing to erupt. On this day, would you come? Come and talk to me and Aaron. Let us, let us walk with you through the gospel. Let us tell you about the Savior that is sufficient and enough to deliver you. This morning, maybe you're a Christian and you find your